Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast here on our home on Colin. For anyone who is here for the first time, the basic format uh, of the show and one of the things that excites me most about this relatively new platform is that it's designed to be interactive. So I will speak for some period of time um, about the topic that I indicated I intend to discuss in, in the top in the title of the room. And at any time you want, you can indicate that you have a question or some comment that you want to discuss with me uh, by clicking the raised hand feature and you'll be automatically put into the queue in the sequence in which you press that button. And as soon as I'm done and I'll try and leave as much time as possible, I will begin to take questions and comments and be able to engage in interaction with you by going one after the next in the queue. So as the title indicates, I want to spend some time talking about the recent developments in how the media has been talking about the origins of COVID-19. And obviously, this is not a new topic. There has been a raging debate for, well, pretty much since the pandemic began about whether there is evidence that makes it more likely that the virus was zoonotic, that it leapt from non-human animals through into humanity, either through wet markets where bats or other animals were sold. That was the theory that was propounded by the scientific establishment very early on, including Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization. Others have said that it is a distinct possibility that it was not a naturally occurring virus, but instead was man-made in a laboratory and that unintentionally the virus may have leaked from a viral laboratory, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is located in Wuhan, the place in China where the coronavirus first emerged. And it just so happens that that institute not only studies virology, but specifically studies coronaviruses in bats, making the question of whether it was a gigantic coincidence that the place where COVID-19 first emerged just so happened to be the same location where an institute, a laboratory is located that collects and studies and manipulates coronaviruses in bats and the people who were trying to raise that as a possibility, namely that it may have come not from uh, natural occurrences or from a zoonotic leap from animals into humans, but instead may have come from a lab leak, were viciously attacked and denounced as people who were either racist because they were trying to blame the pandemic on the Chinese an argument I never really understood since I always found it borderline racist to immediately leap to this narrative that the reason there was a COVID-19 pandemic, that the reason there was this novel coronavirus was because of the unsanitary conditions of Chinese wet markets. That seemed to me at least to be a lot more uh, exploitative of stereotypes of the Chinese than saying, well, they have a sophisticated lab that didn't have uh, sufficient safeguards and by trying to investigate and do research on various viruses to determine what are effective vaccines 
an act uh, an accident occurred and the virus leaked out. I never understood at all, and I still don't why the lab leak theory was demonized as racist or provocative toward the Chinese, but the attempt to blame them and their eating practices at wet markets was somehow viewed as noble and benevolent. But for whatever reason, that was very much the view of the scientific establishment that the lab leak theory was not only negated by all available evidence and therefore unscientific, but it was also likely racist and highly provocative toward the Chinese. And it was dismissed as a deranged conspiracy theory. And it was so demonized, this theory, the possibility that the COVID-19 virus came from a lab leak that Facebook and Google on YouTube censored anyone who was raising that possibility, who was saying that they didn't believe that the evidence was sufficient to conclude that it was naturally occurring and instead believed that the virus was man-made. It was the official policy of Facebook and Google on YouTube and seemingly the policy of Twitter, although Twitter had much less uh, transparency about it, that anyone raising that claim would be banned or prohibited on the grounds that they were spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories because this line of thinking went. It was already proven by the scientific establishment what the origins of COVID were, that they did not come from a lab, but instead came from uh, the zoonotic leap, that it occurred naturally and made the transition from animal to human as other coronaviruses in the past had done. And I think it's one of the reasons why I, I decided to write about this issue today is in part because sometimes I do think it is worth, with a little bit of distance, revisiting from a broader viewpoint, the line of events that took place about something incredibly significant so that we can appreciate in ways that we can't, if we're just living it day to day, exactly how serious and consequential and grave that it was. I recently did the same thing, this kind of autopsy on how right before the election, the New York Post had broken a story were a series of stories that call into question the integrity of the presidential frontrunner Joe Biden due to his pursuit of business deals in Ukraine and China based on emails that came from a laptop owned by his son Hunter. And the CIA invented a lie, an outright lie, that those emails were not authentic, but instead were, quote, Russian disinformation, 50 or 60 former high-level officials of the intelligence community wrote a letter admitting they had no evidence for this, but nonetheless saying that their intuition led them to believe that, and based on this fabrication, that the emails weren't genuine, but instead were Russian disinformation, Twitter outright banned any attempt to discuss that reporting by making any links to the New York Post reporting inoperative, and Facebook announced that they would be algorithmically suppressing the story, an incredible act of big time tech censorship, preventing millions of Americans from hearing about reporting based on documents, which a mountain of evidence already at the time had shown was genuine and which a book uh, published about six weeks ago by a political reporter, Ben Schreckinger, definitively demonstrated 
were in fact genuine, not misinformation at all. And so you have this incredibly brute act of censorship about an American election and the leading candidate for uh, president right before the United States goes to vote based on a lie concocted by the CIA. And I don't quite think we process the gravity of what happened there, especially since once that book was published by Ben Treckinger, most of the media outlets that disseminated and ratified that lie never even acknowledged the evidence in that book proving these emails were authentic. They just pretended they never, it never happened. I thought it was worth writing about to kind of take a step back and evaluate with the benefit of time and space just how serious of an infringement of an encroachment on our ability to disseminate information that was, I mean, such an extreme act of censorship. So part of why I decided to write about the debate over COVID's origins was because a very similar form of censorship took place right from the start of the pandemic before it was really possible for scientists to have known very much about what this novel coronavirus was. It was called novel coronavirus for a reason because it hadn't been seen before. It had never emerged before in humanity or in in the world. Scientists had only begun studying it a very short period of time when they decreed that they had determined definitively that its origins were, were natural to the point where Nobody was allowed to even question that or dissent from it. So part of why I wanted to write about that today was to kind of go back and look at how severe of a censorship regime had been imposed, not in China surrounding this question, but in the West. But also because there are some new developments, specifically both the New York Times and the Washington Post published articles within the last couple of weeks that were clearly designed to reinforce the view that the COVID-19 virus came not from a lab, but from the wet market in Wuhan. And they did that specifically by pointing to a study that had been published in the journal Science. For the last several months, it had been claimed by epidemiologists that they were able to trace the first person who became sick with COVID. And he was an accountant in China who lived quite far from the wet markets of Wuhan, further than one would expect for patient zero to be if it actually emerged from these wet markets. And so being able to pinpoint the first patient as this accountant seemed to negate or at least militate against this longtime theory that it came from the wet markets. And this recent study that was published in science purported to claim the opposite, that they had pinpointed the first patient and he wasn't this accountant who had lived far from the wet markets. He was actually a vendor who worked in the wet market itself, which obviously would lend credence to the claim that COVID came from those wet markets. And so the New York Times and the Washington Post wrote articles making clear that This study was by no means dispositive on the question and making clear that scientists still can't prove whether COVID came from a natural occurrence or from a lab, which is a pretty remarkable admission to be so mainstream, given that for the first 15 months of the pandemic, the opposite claim was made, that we do know for certain where it came from, that it didn't come from a lab, but instead came 
from animal species. So it's now mainstream to say, everyone it says essentially, that we still don't know for certain where it came from, but these articles were designed to promote the idea that they probably came from the wet market. And in order to bolster that view, both the New York Times and the Washington Post relied on sources which I found to be unbelievably dubious, bordering on unethical for them to have cited. So the New York Times primary source, who they gave four or five paragraphs to in this article just a couple of weeks ago, to insist that this new study was strong evidence that it didn't come from a lab, but instead came from uh, nature, was Peter Daszak, who was the president of the EcoHealth Alliance. They gave him four or five paragraphs to say, oh, look, this evidence is incredibly powerful, that there was no lab leak. The Washington Post had its own source who went even further than Daszak did. They quoted a virologist named Robert F. Gary, and he explicitly said, Dr. Gary did in this article, that the debate is now closed, that it is 100% clear that we know for certain the origins of COVID, that it didn't come from a lab, but came instead from the wet market. And the quote in the Washington Post was, quote, Mike's piece, he's referring there to the scientist who published the study in Science, purporting to pinpoint the first COVID case as a vendor in the wet market quote, shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that, in fact, the Hunan market was the epicenter of the outbreak. So he's asserting emphatically and definitively that we know for sure where this came from, even though many scientists, probably most, even Peter Daszak, are much more cautious and still saying Even if I believe that it's likely that it came from a wet market, we still don't have definitive proof. And many scientists, as the Post acknowledged, are actually saying this study is extremely sketchy and unreliable, that it relies on hearsay, that it's not very convincing. And many continue to believe, many credentialed scientists, highly respected and prestigious, continue to believe that it's at least as likely that it came from a lab, if not more likely. And yet, the Post and the Times, in order to promote the, lab, the, the wet market theory, relied on these two sources. And I want to talk about these two sources in a minute. But before I do, I just want to go and review the series of events that caused the world to be told right from the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, before most of us even knew there was a pandemic, in February of 2020, that scientists had definitively determined that this was a naturally occurring virus and that anyone who disputed that was engaged in disinformation and attack on science. The prime impulse, the prime mover for this narrative was a letter that was published in Lancet in February of 2020, signed by just over two dozen scientists. And that letter purported to express, quote, support for the scientists, public health professionals, and medical professionals of China combating COVID-19. But it actually did much more than that. It asserted rather definitively that the 
virus that was causing people to become so sick was, quote, that science had discovered, quote, that this coronavirus originated in wildlife. And they went on to say there are some people raising the possibility that COVID came from a lab leak and the letter dismissed that as a conspiracy theory, the byproduct of, quote, rumors and misinformation, a theory which they strongly implied was an unfair and possibly racist attack on the scientists of China. It was that letter that really was the sealing of the envelope declaring the debate over before it could really even begin. For the next several months, anytime anyone attempted to raise the possibility that COVID came from a lab leak, this Lancet letter was cited as the the kind of uh, gold standard for all of the leading epidemiologists and virologists who have told you that the science, the science, is clear that that wasn't the case. Now, as it turns out, the prime mover of that letter was Peter Daszak. And one of the amazing things is that in the letter that was published in Lancet, there was a certification by the authors of or the signatories to this letter, the last line of which said, quote, we declare no competing interest, which is a standard formulation that the Lancet requires for scientists to certify that they have no vested interest in the outcome of the scientific debate that they're weighing in on. They're just objective scientists. They don't have investments or other personal stake in the outcome of the debate. They have no conflicting interests, no competing interests. They're simply scientists who are objective and doing their best to speak the truth. As it turns out, this Lancet letter, which was completely fundamental, to the censorship regime that quickly got imposed on the ability to dissent from this theory has fallen into complete disrepute. And the primary reason for that is Peter Daszak, the person who engineered this letter. And the reason, one reason that it fell into disrepute because he was the one who engineered that letter is because The idea that he doesn't have any competing interest in the outcome of this debate was the exact opposite of the truth. There is almost nobody on the planet with a more vested interest in having the world believe that the origin of COVID was zoonotic and not from a lab leak than Peter Daszak. And the reason is that EcoHealth Alliance, which is the entity that employs him and provides his only income, had received funding grants from the National Institute of Health, and the EcoHealth had taken some of the funding and provided grants to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to enable them to study coronaviruses in bats. So if it turned out that the Wuhan Institute of Virology the institute funded in part by Peter Daszak's organization was responsible for the COVID pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people and caused immense suffering around the globe, that it was caused by the lab that Peter Daszak funded do research similar to this, it would be a career-destroying 
or at least career crippling blow to his reputation. He has an enormous stake in having the world believe that it came from a lab and not from, or that it didn't come from a lab, but rather was naturally occurring. And the fact that he falsely certified in that February 2020 letter that he had no interest is not really in dispute because in July of this year, The Lancet published a second letter by the same group of scientists who published that first letter. And there were two notable differences in the July 2021 letter. Number one is they radically softened their language. So that in the July 2021 language letter, they did not purport to have conclusive evidence that COVID was naturally occurring. Instead, they acknowledged that they have a belief, our working view is what they called it, that SARS-CoV-2 was most, most likely originated in nature and not in a laboratory. But then they said, but our opinions are neither data nor conclusions. And then they urged further investigation on what they called, called, quote, the critical question we must now address, namely, how did SARS reach the human population? In other words, they had spent 15 months telling us that there was no debate. There was no critical question. That question had been resolved to the point where anybody who questioned whether it came from a lab should be banned from the Internet, accused of disinformation and probably of being racist. Only for them now in July of this year, in light of new evidence, in light of the realization that there was ample evidence from the start to believe it may have come from a lab, to be much more humble and uncertain and to say that it's a critical question we now must explore. The question they prevented the world from exploring by declaring the debate closed 15 months earlier in February of 2020 when they had no basis for doing so. The other major change in the July Lancet letter as compared to the February one from the prior year was that there is now a very lengthy disclosure of Peter Daszak's interest, vested interest in the outcome of the debate. There's no more certification from Peter Daszak as there was back in February of 2021 that there are no competing interests. Instead, it now makes clear at length exactly what the competing interests are. In fact, there's an addendum to the July 2021 letter that is entitled, quote, Competing Interests and the Origin of SARS-CoV-2. And there's a lengthy paragraph explaining that Peter Daszak receives his remuneration exclusively from a salary from EcoHealth, which had received funding from NIH to study coronaviruses and bats and use some of that to fund research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So the prime mover of the February 2020 letter falsely certified, falsely, that he had no vested interest in the outcome of the debate. And in July of 2021, 15 months later, the the Lancet finally went back and made the disclosure that he had exactly the competing interests that he denied having. Now, that is why I decided to write about it today, in part because the New York Times, in its most recent article, pushing the lab leak theory, relied on this very same Peter Daszak to essentially say that this new study lent further proof of the fact that it did not come from a lab. And there was a paragraph that fleetingly acknowledged 
that he has been involved in research about the COVID origins that he had funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but it doesn't make remotely clear just how urgent it is for his reputation and career for him to convince people that in fact did not come from the lab he helped fund, but came from natural words. And it's a bizarre choice to cite one of the people with the greatest vested interest in the outcome of this debate as your objective scientific source, the way the New York Times did, especially given that we know for certain he falsely certified in that original Lancet article that he had no vested interest in the outcome. It's even more bizarre since the NIH, under pressure from Congress, has distanced itself in a very aggressive way from EcoHealth. There was a letter that the NIH sent to Congress, um, and that letter was in uh, May of this year, and the NIH essentially accused EcoHealth of violating the terms of the grant. The NIH said that they do not believe that the coronavirus strains that the EcoHealth funded and the Wuhan Institute of Virology worked with was the coronavirus. They don't believe that it could have become COVID-19, but they nonetheless say that the experiments conducted by EcoHealth led to, quote, unusual results. And EcoHealth violated their terms of the grant from NIH by not reporting those unusual results to the NIH, results which did make these viruses more contagious and more dangerous to humans. And they also failed in their reporting requirements in general to the NIH. So the NIH has clearly heaped blame on Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance, making it even stranger that the New York Times would use him as their primary source to say that the evidence is becoming clear that it came from the wet market. What's even more bizarre is that the consensus is now the exact opposite of what we were told it should be for the first 15 months. In May or June of this year, Facebook reversed its longstanding policy that it had been implementing for the last 15 months, which banned anybody from questioning or suggesting that COVID was man-made. Facebook said, in light of new developments, we are now allowing on our platform an open debate about whether it was actually from a lab. 15 months into the pandemic, Facebook reversed the censorship ban that had been imposed based on the Lancet letter and the assurances from Dr. Fauci. Joe Biden, right at the same time, admitted that there was a gigantic question which his own intelligence agencies harbored about what the origins of COVID-19 were. And he ordered them to find out whether, in fact, it came from a wet market or whether it came from a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So these same institutions that tried to claim the debate closed, that anyone who questioned the proclamations in that Lancet letter was crazy or a conspiracy theorist or engaged in disinformation, the consensus is now the exact opposite that we don't actually know which of those theories or perhaps others is in fact true. But the New York Times continues to use Dr. Uh, Peter Danzig as their source. Now, the Washington Post source for 
its article that was very similar about this science article is even more interesting. As I said, their source was Robert Gary, a biologist who the Post quoted as saying that the new study, quote, shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the wet market was the epicenter of the outbreak. And what's so interesting about Robert Gary is that in May of this year, an archive of emails from Dr. Fauci was released as a result of FOIA requests. And one of the things that was discovered in that archive of emails was that before that Lancet letter in February was signed, a group of scientists, including Robert Gary, sent an email to Dr. Fauci in which they said that they believed, having studied the coronavirus, that it looks as though the features of the virus, quote, were engineered. They also said after, this was from uh, Dr. Anderson, who was working with uh, Dr. Gary at the time. He wrote an email to uh, Dr. Fauci on January 31st. He said, after discussions earlier today, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. So they were saying in January, at the end of January, to Dr. Fauci in an email, that although we don't know for certain, our preliminary examination leads us to believe that the genome, a small part of it, when you look at it, looks as though the features of it were engineered and that it is inconsistent with what one would expect from a naturally evolving virus. So a group of highly credentialed scientists said just days before that Lancet letter Not only is the debate not closed, but we believe, having studied it, that we think there's evidence that it might have come from a lab. Now, they didn't say they knew for sure. They said they have to investigate it further. But clearly, the scientific establishment in the West knew that there was a serious debate to be had. Now, right after Fauci got that letter, and it was CC to Jeremy Farrar, who is one of the most important Uh, overseers of virology and epidemiological research in the UK, sort of the Tony Fauci of the UK. He controls huge amounts of funding for virological research in the Western world. Shortly after Fauci got that letter, he immediately contacted Dr. Farrar and they had a conference with the scientists who had said that they believed that the virus was engineered, one of whom was Robert Gary, the Washington Post source, who's now pronouncing the debate closed. And there's a really fascinating article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that was published uh, earlier this year in August by the science writer Nicholas Wade, who describes the process by which these, this group of scientists that originally told Dr. Fauci that they believed the virus was engineered. Shortly thereafter, very shortly, after having this kind of conference with both Fauci and Farrar, who, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, quote, together control a large portion of the funds available for virological research in the Western world, which means to this article that 
when Fauci and Farrar gather scientists like the group that said they believe it came from a lab, it is creating, quote, a notable imbalance of power between the virologists and these officials because any virologist keen to continue his career would be very attentive to their wishes, meaning the wishes of Fauci and Farrar. And it went on to say two of the conference participants, two of the scientists who had said they believed the COVID virus was engineered, quote, had already multi-million dollar grant proposals under final review with NIAID, which is Fauci's agency, at the time of the call. We don't know what happened in this conference that they summoned, because when the archive of Fauci's emails were released, any references to this conference were heavily redacted. But what we do know is the conference had a huge impact on what these scientists said. They did a 180 degree immediate about face within days. These same scientists who had emailed Dr. Fauci saying they believed it came from a lab or was engineered, took the exact opposite view, claiming that they viewed it as a crackpot theory that it may have come from a lab. And in particular, Dr. Gary, the Washington Post source, ended up writing, publishing a paper in which he said that he believes that it clearly was zoonotic and not from a lab, as he had claimed Dr. Fauci in that January 31st email or was part of the group that was talked about in that email. And Jeremy Farrar, the sort of Dr. Fauci of Great Britain, started promoting the articles by Peter Davzik. And he went on to Twitter in June of 2020 and he, and he tweeted, quote, ignore the conspiracy theories. Scientists know COVID-19 wasn't created in the lab. As always worth reading Peter Daszak. And he linked to a Guardian article by Peter Daszak that was headlined, ignore the conspiracy theories. Scientists know COVID-19 wasn't created in the lab. Now, just like the Lancet article in February that Peter Daszak engineered, this Guardian article promoted by Farrar, published by the Guardian on June 9th, also didn't disclose that Peter Daszak, the author, author of this article, telling the world that science knows it didn't come from the lab, had a strong vested interest in the outcome of that debate. Two days later, in response to vocal protests, the Guardian added added an editor's note saying, quote, the article was amended on June 11 to make clear the writer's past work with researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Two more amazing facts about this series of events. In September... My media media outlet, which I co-founded and then left in late 2020, submitted a FOIA request for documents pertaining to activities of EcoHealth Alliance. And I strongly believe the Intercept's motive in doing that, based on what I know, was that they wanted to vindicate Dr. Fauci, who had been in a public war with Rand Paul, because Rand Paul was accusing Fauci of having the NIH fund what is called gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, namely making viruses deliberately more contagious and more dangerous to humans. And Dr. Fauci repeatedly called Rand Paul a liar, saying that no gain-of-research function, gain-of-function research was ever funded by the NIH. And so the Intercept FOIA'd documents to show what the EcoHealth Alliance was actually doing with these grants. 
And to the great surprise of the Intercept, when they got these documents, they had to litigate in order to get them. And to their credit, they honestly published and described what they were. They actually showed that EcoHealth was involved in, with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, exactly the kind of manipulation of viruses, which both Dr. Fauci and Peter Daszak had long vehemently denied they were doing. Some scientists said that it was classic gain-of-function research. And even defenders of Peter Daszak, who were quoted in a recent profile of him in Science Magazine that described how he went from, in their words, prophet to pariah, even his defenders said the damage to his reputation is his own doing because EcoHealth and Daszak were so dishonest about so many things from the very beginning of the pandemic, including their vested interest, including the actual research that they were doing. The other really interesting event is that just a few months after the group of scientists that wrote to Dr. Fauci in June, in January 20, uh, 2020, saying that they believe that the virus had been engineered and then recanted quickly after a conference with Fauci and Farrar, they received a very substantial grant from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, which is the agency Fauci directs, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Quote, in August 2020, the NIAID announced it would award $82 million over five years to 10 participants in its network for, defect- for detecting infectious diseases, among the lucky winners, Dazek Anderson and his associate Robert Gary. Robert Gary, the same source on whom the Washington Post relied to pronounce the debate closed, without disclosing any of these events in which he was involved, that he was part of the group that told Fauci at the beginning that they believed the genome was engineered and inconsistent with a naturally occurring virus, that he was summoned to a conference that's still secret because they redacted the information, that days later he publicly recanted and then months later was part of an $82 million grant over five years from the NIAID, the institute that Fauci runs. Now, none of this is proof, obviously, that these scientists were corrupt, that it was a quid pro quo where they agreed to publicly recant in exchange for money. No one's suggesting that. Nor is anyone saying, or at least I don't believe, that the debate over COVID's origins is closed one way or the other, that there's dispositive proof one way or the other about whether it came from a lab or whether it came from uh, a zootic process. I don't claim to know the answer, in part because I don't claim the competence to assess that evidence, and also because the scientific consensus seems to be to be in conflict on this question. And everyone seems to agree, other than maybe Dr. Gary now, that there is no dispositive proof one way or the other, which is why Joe Biden ordered an investigation, why the intelligence community harbors internal conflicts about this dispute. But what bothers me the most is that for the first 15 months of this pandemic, there was a prohibition on debating the origins of this uh, virus because there was an assertion that was clearly baseless, namely that the science had dispositively determined it came from the wet markets, 
based on claims by a person who lied when he said he had no vested interest in the outcome, Peter Daszak, when 15 months later he acknowledged that he in fact had substantial interest in the outcome of that debate. And so what we have here yet again are the people who claim to be so concerned about the spread of disinformation that they're willing to censor our discourse and censor the internet in the name of stopping it, who actually themselves are the most responsible for the spread of disinformation by affirming things that aren't true and by preventing any dissent or questioning of their decrees from being heard. So that's the article I wrote at Substack, uh, which you can read over there. It gathers all of the evidence. It, It was a lot of work that went into this article to recreate the series of events. I think if you read it, regardless of your views on the origins of COVID, you should come away very disturbed by how the claimed knowledge was manipulated and a a regime of censorship imposed in order to prevent any questioning by people who had a deeply, deeply vested interest in convincing the world that this institute in Wuhan had nothing to do with this global pandemic. So with that, let me go ahead and start to take some questions from the people in the queue. Uh, first up, having trouble seeing the name, I believe it's uh, it's a dog avatar, which is always good. Uh, Marie, go ahead and, and, and speak. Good evening, Glenn. How are you? Doing good. Thank you. Um, and yes, that is my dog. A um, couple of things real quick. Um, There is way more to this even than you noted. Um, I suggest you take a look into Ralph Barrick of uh, uh, University of North Carolina and his work. Um, Everybody should know that the so-called moratorium on gain-of-function research had no teeth, that the head of the grant agency could, by decree, approve a gain-of-function grant if they wanted to. And in this event, that would be Tony Fauci. So there you have it. But the, my more important point is that they're making a distinction without a difference. This wet market, we know that this particular virus can exist in every animal species we've looked at, from dogs to deer to cattle. If you had an, infect, an infected employee of that institute walk down in a busy corridor and they infect somebody in that market, okay, it's going to look like it came from the market. And if you look for an animal, you might find one. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't exonerate the lab because we know this virus is airborne, which is very uncommon for a, a new zoonotic disease to be airborne is unheard of almost. Um. It just it, it's this they're trying to hide a lie behind a half truth. Yeah, you know, look, I, you know, as I indicated, I personally don't feel comfortable heavily participating in the debate about the epidemiological origins of a virus. Since I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist. I listen to what you said and what other people say who have some degree of expertise or have some case to make that seems based in science. And my greatest interest is ensuring that that debate can be conducted freely precisely because there's so much at stake. And what you just got done saying is the kind of thing that there are scientists saying 
And yet, had you said that on YouTube six months ago or nine months ago, you would have been banned and removed. And had you said it on Facebook, you would have been too. And had you said it anywhere else, you would have been vilified as a conspiracy theorist because of this false consensus that had been asserted. And that's the thing that bothers me the most. And, you know, I lost a friend over that very thing. Um, she called me deluded, delusional that I had been you know, duped. And we've known each other for decades. So I understand what you're saying. Now, you, I don't know much about media. You're the media guy. How long is it going to take? I was around for the Dan Rather uh, memo thing. First, you know, Internet takedown of a media figure that I know of. How long is it going to take the media to realize that they are, are no longer in a, a segregated information environment and eventually it's going to come around to bite them? Well, I think they're, I think they're realizing that now. And I think the more that th- things like this happen, the more faith and trust the public loses in them. And they obviously know that their audience is abandoning them, that people are migrating to independent platforms. They like to whine about that and complain about that that people are turning to unreliable sources that disseminate fake news, and yet very rarely do they engage in any kind of a critique about or a self-examination about whether it's possible that what they've done actually contributes to that. And so by jumping on board a claim that never had any evidentiary basis, namely that it was proven dispositively that this virus emanated from nature rather than a lab, they lose more and more faith and trust. And that's the reason why people turn to independent platforms like this one, like Rumble, like call it like Substack, like YouTube, where people can still speak to some degree freely because of how repressive corporate media is and big tech is getting. And so in some way, the more harm they inflict on themselves through these kinds of continuous debacles in some way, the better the world is because people will come to see more and more how untrustworthy and how unreliable they really are. So let me take the next caller. Um, I'm having trouble seeing the names, but you should be able to Tom. see Tom. Go ahead. For you, Glenn. Um, you know, I'm just a regular guy. And, and I, the way I look at it is, you know, I've lost faith in pretty much all the institutions, public or private. I mean, and I don't see how you can't lose faith because, I mean, we, we were constantly lied to. We're constantly propagandized. We're kind con- I mean, and the, the, then they expect us to go out and get the vaccine because we're supposed to believe in their science or the science. I mean, I believe in science, but I don't know about, you know, I, and I also I saw your um, and, you know, it, it just kind of has to do with it because. I want, you know, some people do. They want to protect their civil liberties and their selves and their, and their you know, this is mine. I got to protect it more than I want to join the public and protect everyone. Because when that threat, when you, you're going to just kind of go into yourself anyhow. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if I'm really expressing what I feel, but that's, you know, I, I, the, the lack of trust and the lack of faith in any of our institutions, it's, it's, it's. I think it's so destructive and we're eroding. I mean, right in front of my eyes. Anyhow, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I really appreciate that comment. I think it actually illustrates one of the most important points. You know, if you look at 
this kind of rendering of the garments over people's reluctance or refusal to get vaccinated because they don't trust what they're being told by health authorities that the vaccine is safe and effective. So often the reason for that is because people have lost faith and trust in institutions of authority, not because they've been misled with conspiracy theories, but because they're rational and they realize how often these institutions of authority lie to them. You know, from my article today, I don't know how many furious scientists, people in the scientific world, people in postdoc programs and who study virology and the like, were viciously denouncing me, lying about my article because I had called into question the faith and wisdom of Dr. Fauci and Peter Daszak. This is what they do. They kind of believe they have an entitlement to be, to, to, to be given reverence and deference when all they do is engage in conduct that is deceitful and that causes people rationally to lose faith and trust in what they're saying. And I do think people now see that the certainty they purported to have at the beginning was a lie. They watch for four months celebrities and government officials and everyone else giving this message that was continuous, stay at your home, stay in your home, don't go out of your home, leaving your home is uh, reckless, sociopathic. And then suddenly after the killing of George Floyd, when this nationwide protest movement broke out, hundreds of thousands of people densely packed on top of one another on their streets, they all said, oh, it's fine actually to go ahead and go do that because people are outside, they're wearing masks. Now suddenly it's safe now that there's a protest that I think is important and that is aligned with my own politics. Every time they do something like that, every time they get caught doing things like that, faith and trust in their pronouncements and in their right to claim authority erodes more and more. And it is dangerous because we do need institutions of authority, journalistic and health experts and all other kinds of, of institutions that are trusted and have earned that trust. And it is tragic when a society and the people who live in it no longer believe that they can put their faith in the pronouncements of the people who ought to be guiding them through these most difficult times, but they have nobody to blame but themselves. I, I, I agree. And it's just, you know, I, I feel like it, we've gone, gone to a tipping point and what are we going to do? I mean, I, I'm so every day it's like, I, I mean, like anger, just because the way the world, and I become so much more conservative. I, I don't even know, but I'm just unmoored from any. So much though. Taking my call. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, Tom. Thank you so much. Um, next mm. up, let me see here. Uh, I believe it's Tree Marie. I may be butchering that name because I'm having a hard time seeing them, but you probably see yourself next to the queue. Yeah, Tree Marie. Yeah, there you go. I had it right. Hi. Um, you know, it feels like um, you know, with your reporting with the with the new the New York Times and the Washington Post. You know, by them withholding context or, you know, complete background, not being transparent about the things you revealed today, like they kind of like framed it or tipped it in the direction of the Peter Daszak wanted it to go. Okay. Um, And I know that they keep relying on them. Now, is this out of like just stupidity or like what are they getting out of this? Why are they doing this? Well, I just don't understand why 
No, you know, it's a it's a great question because let's put yourself in the position of the New York Times and the reporters and editors of the New York Times. Let's say that you really are convinced that this latest study in, in the journal Science is not dispositive proof, but convincing evidence of the origins of coronavirus in the wet market because you believe they presented compelling evidence enabling the first patient to be identified who was a vendor in the wet market. Let's say you believe that, that you're a New York Times reporter editor and that's the claim you want to convince your readers to believe. Of Mm -hmm. all the people that you can go and interview to tell you (laughs) and your readers that this is strong evidence negating the lab leak theory, why would you possibly go and pick Peter Daszak, who the scientific world knows and the greater public has become increasingly aware is a completely deceitful and unreliable source. It makes it so easy to attack. And what it leaves me wondering is whether there are actually objective sources who don't have a vested interest in the outcome, who would have been willing to say what Peter Daszak said with such force because This study, according to a lot of scientists, was barely suitable for peer-reviewed publication. It it was kind of very sketchy. It relied on hearsay. A lot of scientists criticized it. So it may be that the only people the New York Times could have gotten to say that this is strong evidence was Peter Daszak. The only person the Washington Post could get to say it closed the debate was Robert Gary. And even knowing how dubious these sources are, they decided that their narrative was more important. I, I don't know why. I don't know what their motive is. All I know is that that's what prompted me to write it was not the epidemiological argument that I was trying to say, I believe the lab leak. It was the journalistic angle of saying, how is it possible to rely on these two particular people at all, mm-hmm. let alone without disclosing in detail what their involvement in these events have been? Right, right. You know, I've I've heard stuff about you know about um, like money from China, like even the, um, you know, the media relies on funding and stuff. Could could that? Could there be a subconscious or a or a even conscious thing to protect China or any question in that direction? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, the New York Times as an entity is. Thriving. It has over 8 million subscribers. It's a big profit center. I don't believe they rely on much money. I think that what is more the case is that the, the institution, the sector of U.S. society that is most in bed with Chinese business interests is Wall Street. And in the general business and elite class, there definitely is a predisposition to treat the Chinese with great deference. You know, Michael Bloomberg, in, when he was gearing up to run for president, refused even to say that the Chinese Communist Party was tyrannical or dictatorial. Um, you know, Wall Street yeah. is really closely aligned with the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, as a result, I think that a lot of people in elite culture, which certainly includes New York Times and Washington Post reporters, just kind of end up absorbing that ethos rather than it being some consciously corrupt desire to protect the Chinese for financial gain. Um, Let me go to the next caller. I think it's uh, Joey, and I apologize if I'm getting your name wrong, but go ahead and unmute yourself. 
Hi. Hi, sorry. I'm calling from uh, Canada. And um, I was just wondering if I could get your thoughts on um, uh, mandatory or forced vaccination and sort of the uh, quarantine facilities, the city I'm in just um, approved uh, the funding for uh, the construction of um, of uh, quarantine facilities. Um, and uh, I was just wondering if I could get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I find vaccine mandates completely unjustifiable. I don't understand the rationale. And I, when I say that, I'm not, I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean, I genuinely don't understand the rationale. The premise of vaccines is that those of us who take them are protected from serious illness or death. We've been told over and over that all the scientific data has demonstrated the efficacy of the vaccines to prevent serious injury or death, that the overwhelming majority of people who are hospitalized are people who are not vaccinated. Therefore, if you decide that you're going to be vaccinated, as I decided that I would be, why do I care? Why is it uh, a harm to me if the person down the street or in, 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 in the restaurant where I go to eat decides that they don't want to put the vaccine into their body? Even if it's true, it's especially true because when the CDC reversed its guidelines, they had originally said that if you're vaccinated, you no longer need to wear masks anywhere, indoors or outdoors. And when they reversed it, they said because of the new variant, if you're vaccinated, you can transmit and you can you can uh, you, you can you can get and transmit the virus, maybe not as easily as unvaccinated people, but still quite readily. Then the question becomes even more pressing. If I'm going to sit next to a person on an airplane and I'm worried about COVID, which I wouldn't be because I'm vaccinated, but if I were, way more relevant to me with that person sitting next to me, I wouldn't care if they were vaccinated or not. I would guess if I really was scared, I'd want to see a COVID test right before the flight. That's the one thing. If I saw a negative test, that would give me 100% assurance that they weren't a danger to me. But the draconian punishments that societies are imposing of forcing people to lose their jobs, of denying them free movement into public spaces unless they obey the dictate to get the vaccine, I find horrifying and repressive and chilling. And these camps in which people are being placed, I don't know much about the ones in Canada. I know much more about the ones in Australia. I'm sure we've all seen the videos. We've all read the the accounts of them, it's, it's absolutely horrifying, given that, especially in a post-vaccination world, that the government is continuing two years into the pandemic almost now to demand more and more and more authoritarian powers in the name of fighting a pandemic for which there's now a safe and effective vaccine. It really reminds me of the war on terror, which is what motivated me in the first instance to begin writing about politics. The further we got away from 9-11, and the lack of repetition about a mass casualty event like that, somehow the government kept claiming the need more and more for still greater and greater powers of detention and surveillance and other authoritarian powers in the name of fighting a threat that clearly had been placed at bay. And that is the nature of government is once they get their hands on certain power, they want more and more and more of it. And I think that what we're being trained to do is to submit to a kind of regime of acquiescence where anytime the government claims it needs a certain power, including censorship powers, that it tells us is necessary to protect us, we're being trained to submit and to not question it. And I find that extremely disturbing.
All right, thank you. Next up is Brendan. You can go ahead and unmute. Oh, there we go. Sorry, I did not know how to unmute. Um, uh, first, I just want to thank you. I mean, I know you just kind of referenced it, but I want to thank you for your work with um, Edward Snowden. I think that was yet another example of, you know, institutional problems. Um, and I think I'm on the same theme as other people that almost every impactful institution you look at is disturbing, um, to use your words from earlier. Um, there's so much institutional power and inertia. You said a lot is at stake. Um, I'm not sure what is at stake because I don't know that I have faith that anything would change. Like if you did know that it came from the lab, um, I don't know what would happen. And I think the world has a lot of complex problems and I'm an optimist in terms of technology being able to solve them. But I guess I'm pessimistic about people. I think, you know, humans have the ability to kind of solve any problem and we don't really have a technology problem. We just have a people problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, first of all, I mean, when I say there's a lot at stake, I mean that in two senses. One is, you know, the pandemic is clearly the most consequential event politically and culturally in our lifetimes. The only potential competitor is the 9-11 attack, at least in terms of the West. It is something that is going to transform and reshape how people think of themselves, how they think of their relationship to society their mental health, how they live, how they work for many, many years to come. I don't think you can overstate the significance of this pandemic in terms of the enduring impact it's going to have to say nothing of the financial impact, the loss of lives, the changes in government that already has been ushered in its name. So when you have an event of that historic importance, I just think inherently it's important to know what happened. We should know where this virus came from simply because the knowledge itself is important. But I also yeah. think that if we were to determine, for example, that it did come from a lab leak, I do think there'd be a much more serious debate at the very least about what kinds of safeguards are necessary for labs that engage in research of this type, because there have been warnings for many years that this institute in particular had insufficient safeguards. And we would probably have the much more important debate about what are the costs and benefits of research that manipulates pathogens in order to become more contagious. Like there are genuine scientific benefits from being able to do that in a lab. We understand more how viruses function. We can create treatments and vaccines as a result, but the dangers are severe and it would clearly play a relevant role in how much we thought about that, how we weigh those costs and benefits, which I think is a big part of why the scientific establishment is petrified of that possibility, precisely because the public will start paying more attention to what they do. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I like that outlook, but I guess I'm concerned that, you know, like in this um, pandemic and before, it's like the, the politicization or like the team aspect of politics where now it's like people are split. And like you could use climate change as an example, too. Like I think the scientific community is um, pretty confirmed on climate change, but there also there's I don't see any positive momentum there either, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I certainly think you can, you know, make a strong case that there's a lot more 
serious concerted focus on the possibility of climate catastrophe than there was five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. No one who believes in the possibility of climate disaster believes the progress is fast enough, but certainly every world leader practically takes it more seriously than they did 10 years ago. And there's some action at least that didn't exist before. So these kinds of changes happen slowly. Um, They happen imperceptibly. And ultimately we can play a big role in how these changes take place. Like, I don't think we should just throw up our hands and, and, and feel like they're some kind of destiny or fate that will determine how they play out. I think, you know, we have to realize our own power um, in how we influence these, these debates through our voice and through our, our ability to organize. And, and that's why I think and continue to believe that free and open debates are more critical than anything, because without those, there's no way any of that is possible. Let me try and take a couple more. Um, go ahead. Is it B? Go ahead. Yeah, it's B. Hey, Glenn. Sorry, big fan. I'm calling from Australia. Never used calling before. Um, I'd just like to build on Brendan's comments. Um, I think the cognitive dissonance that's been required to believe that the lab sort of wasn't involved when they're in such close proximity is crazy to me. And also, two things can be true at once. So I think it is quite likely that somebody that maybe was around the lab or frequented the lab visited the wet market. Like, those two things can also be true together. Um, I think regardless, the debate around the source shouldn't really be the focus because as much conversation, um, the conversation should really be focused around regulation or lack thereof of the gain of function testing, its ethics, um, in biowarfare in general. I understand the importance of knowing who we should hold culpable, but really like what is there, is it even possible to atone for the damage and the life cost that this has had? I, I can't see a way that any one organizational person could. Um, and I think there's already enough detail to hold certain people accountable, like like Fauci, in consideration of the funding that's gone into the research and the, like a review of the risks that you pointed out were associated with the lab itself. Um, also, just in regards to the situation in Australia, so I, I don't know what the solution is, but denying people access to common society based on medical status just for me seems like a very dangerous precedent to set. Um, there is a lot of misinformation, but I don't think the way that the media has projected this archetype of all individuals who are vaccine hesitant, uh, labeling them anti-vax, et cetera, is just a bit over the top for me because I mean, regardless of where people stand on the matter, the common ground is they just want to live autonomously and safely. So it's sort of two extreme sides of the same coin in, in my opinion. And I just wanted to, to share that and just hear your thoughts. Yeah, those are some great points. Um, let me say a few things. Uh, first of all, I'll give you an analogy of a different event that I did a lot of reporting on and one of the lessons it taught me. So people, a lot of people have forgotten, it's kind of in memory hold, that shortly after the 9-11 attack itself, there were a series of attacks using anthrax where the substance is very fatal, finely weaponized anthrax had been sent through the mail to various people, it was mailed to uh, certain prominent people in, in 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 journalism and in politics. It ended up killing, I think, five people. And the it took years to find the the person who did it. At the time, in late two thousand and one, 
it is hard to remember how much of a role that played in escalating the fear level beyond what it already was after the 9-11 attack. The 9-11 attack was aimed at powers of uh, centers of power, like the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The anthrax attacks are what made people in small towns feel like, oh, this is now coming for me. This can actually, this terrorism can actually just pop up in your mailbox. You don't need to live in Manhattan or work in the Pentagon or the Congress to be a target. It was a hugely influential event. And it took years for them to discover who the, what the source was. They were, there was a claim for about a month in late 2001 that the government had conducted tests on the anthrax and had discovered the presence of bentonite, which is basically a clay that's used for like kitty litter. And they claimed that that was a distinctive attribute of Iraqi anthrax and tried to say that that was virtually smoking gun proof that the anthrax came from Saddam Hussein, obviously at a time when the government, people in the government were eager to usher in a a, a regime change war against Iraq, which the government did end up fighting. They then uh, pursued and destroyed the reputation of a FBI scientist who for years they claimed was the person who did it, Stephen Hatfield. They eventually exonerated him, paid him a lot of money, and ultimately claimed that a research uh, scientist who worked in Fort Detrick at the U.S. Army facility in Fort Detrick who killed himself, Bruce Ivins, was the attacker using anthrax. And the reporting I was doing at the time was based on my deep skepticism about whether that case had actually been proven that it really was Bruce Ivins who was the anthrax attacker. Um, There were lots of mainstream institutions like media outlets and scientific boards that said the FBI's evidence was extremely unconvincing. But even if you believed that they had solved the case and that it came from Bruce Ivins, what that meant is that this deadly weaponized anthrax came from a U.S. Army laboratory, which then provoked the question, or at least should have, why does the U.S. Army have in its possession highly weaponized, highly sophisticated strains of anthrax that they obviously manipulated in the lab to be able to make more deadly if, as the United States claims, it doesn't engage in offensive biowarfare research because it's parties to, con- to various conventions that ban it. And their claim was, we only develop this for defensive purposes so we can study it in order to protect ourselves against it. And the line is obviously very blurry. So one of the things that made me realize is that we know so little, so little about what kinds of scientific experimentation is being conducted by the government, either in conjunction with private partnerships, private partner, private sector partners, or in government labs themselves. Nobody really knew that this U.S. Army facility in Fort Detrick had developed this extremely fatal and dangerous weaponized version of anthrax. And it does remind me a lot of the fact that, you know, very few people publicly knew that there is this program in Wuhan manipulating coronaviruses from bats and making them more contagious pathogens and more dangerous pathogens to humans and that EcoHealth seems to be involved. So, you know, I think that one of the reasons why I find it so disturbing is that a regime of censorship had been imposed on this question was because it seems so deliberate to me that there was clearly an effort to prevent the public from knowing 
about the kinds of research that they do conduct because they know that the public would be very disturbed to learn that these things are being done because of the way in which they jeopardize the world. So that, I think, is a big part of what happened. And as far as what's going on in Australia, you know, that same sort of disinformation campaign was in the United States, where for a long time, the idea was if you were hesitant to get vaccinated, it meant that you were a crazy Trump supporter who had been watching too much Fox News, who had been misled into believing the vaccine was unsafe. And then when they actually did studies to determine who the unvaccinated were, who the vaccine hesitant populations were composed of, it turned out that they were often found in large cities like New York. They were uh, found predominantly in black and Latino communities, obviously people not watching Fox News or who were the traditional Trump supporter. And so the picture was much more complicated and it was largely based on the fact that there was a distrust in institutions, which people have every right to have. And the idea that you're going to set up camps or coercive programs to force people to take a vaccine that they don't trust continues to be highly disturbing to me. Yeah, definitely agree. Thank you, Glenn. I totally agree. I think the conversation should be focused around why these types of studies are taking place and, and the risks and regulations around them. But thank you so much. That was super insightful. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and take the last call, which is from Rick. So if you are in the queue and I didn't get to you, I apologize. I hope you all come back. Um, I always try and leave as much time as I can once I make my points to take as many calls as possible. So hopefully you will come back. But uh, go ahead. Let me just see um, how I can get Rick up into the queue. Just a second. All right, Rick, you can go ahead and unmute yourself, and I should be able to hear you. Hey, Glenn, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, uh, first of all, I, I know you're not religious, neither am I, but, you know, screw it. Uh, God bless you, man. Thanks for Thank keeping this in the, in the forefront. Um, I, I'm calling from Montgomery County, Maryland, otherwise known as the land of Fauci. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's crazy here. Everybody's still in mass. It's like they're pretending like it's, you know, April of 2020. Um, but my question is about Fauci and the media. And, and I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think his game is. Um, but ever since the email leaks, right, he's he's avoided certain journalists like the plague. Right. Like he's he, but but I, I you know, you'll see him go on Fox. Right. But only to talk to Neil Cavuto who's, you know, basically worthless. But I have not seen, and maybe you know of something, but I have not seen anyone ask him, not even Rand Paul, you know, about, hey, what were these really important tasks that you had for Hugh Atchincloss, right? What were you talking about in all these super secret conference calls that are completely redacted over the next three or four days once you found out that this virus was engineered, you liar. Right. Like nobody's holding accountable. Nobody. Now, obviously, Jim Jordan would fillet the guy if he would have the, the intestinal fortitude to go within 100 miles of Jim Jordan, which we all know he won't. But why does it just have to be Jim Jordan? Why won't anybody step up and ask him the hard questions, the real questions that would obviously get him flustered? Right. Sort of like what Morgan Ortega did to, to Adam Schiff on The View. Like, why isn't anybody doing that? And, and, and what would you say about, because I, I see him from time to time, right? I'm in his town and, and I'm by no means, 
you know, insinuating that we should pull the Maxine Waters, you know, create a crowd, tell him he's not welcome. But I mean, should I just, if I see him say, hey, Dr. Fauci, what, what, what was this stuff with you? You know, what, what's going on? Get my phone going. I've seen people do it to, to Schiff and some others. You know, you can do it respectfully, ask questions, make them uncomfortable. But like nobody else is going to do it. You know, should we? I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Sorry. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, as a citizen, you have the absolute right when you see a powerful public official, whoever it is, Dr. Fauci, members of Congress, cabinet members, you know, people who work in the White House, famous journalists who have a big platform as a citizen to hold them accountable by asking them questions when you see them in public. I actually think that's the absolute. Well, why should only journalists who have a TV platform that they agree to go on get to have that right? He makes decisions that affects your lives. Your tax dollars pay his salary and pay for the work that he does. You have the absolute right to question him. Obviously, I think it should be civil and polite and not you know, designed to intimidate or obviously use violence. But of course you have the absolute right to ask him or anyone else questions when you see them. And, you know, I I think that for a long time, I have to say, I couldn't really understand why this extremely uh, passionate shield of protectiveness had been erected around Dr. Fauci. Obviously part of it was that he had been perceived as, adversarial to Donald Trump. He had clearly signaled to the media that he was disturbed by President Trump's management of the COVID pandemic, disturbed by some of his pronouncements. Anyone adversarial to Donald Trump kind of immediately became a media hero. But I think it was actually something much more than that. Um, You know, like I said today, I'm very accustomed to writing articles that make people angry, but the level of rage and indignation over my article today from people in the scientific world was much more intense than normal. And the obvious reason is, is I was calling into question the veracity and integrity, not just of Dr. Fauci, but other prominent critical people in the world of science. And I think when Fauci says, I am the science or I represent the science, and he essentially says that by attacking me, people are attacking the science, Obviously, it's an incredibly arrogant and manipulative way to think about yourself and to create a framework where there's no way to disagree without doc, uh, with Dr. Fauci without attacking science itself. But I think there's a lot of truth about the way they're thinking that's revealed by that formula, which is one of the reasons why they don't want anyone outside of their world questioning what happened here or questioning whether this virus that has devastated the world might have come from themselves and their own work at this highly respected lab in Wuhan with scientists that many of them know and have worked with and consider colleagues and friends and who the United States partners with and funds is because they're petrified that if light is shined on their little secretive world, that they use jargon and specialized knowledge to isolate and hide themselves from public scrutiny, then their little fiefdom is going to be overturned, that people are going to start to ask questions about what is it that you're doing with life and with research and with the power that scientists yield, like what accountability and transparency is being imposed on you and How dangerous is the work that you're doing to the rest of us? And 
what kind of safeguards and limits might we need to impose on what it is you're doing. I think very much this idea that you don't question or critique Dr. Fauci because to do so is to attack science. If you look at it in one way, it seems like a very arrogant pronouncement. But if you look at it in another way, it shows what they're thinking, which is that protecting Dr. Fauci at all costs is crucial because they're really protecting their own prerogatives, their own entitlement to do this work without having the rest of the world butt in in, into what they're doing. And that's very much the reaction that I saw today in response to the article I wrote, even though I wasn't purporting to opine on epidemiological matters or take a position on the origins of COVID. I was evaluating the censorship aspect and the journalistic aspect, which I'm obviously qualified to do. There was this anger anytime any outsider to their world starts questioning or doubting the reliability of their pronouncements and of their work. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing. Yeah. So basically intimidation, right? Like they're just, people are just afraid. I mean, it's crazy. Like we got to, some, something's got to give because this is nuts. I mean, this Fauci has single-handedly ruined our faith in science and government. I mean, anyway, but, but thank you. And I agree. And, you know, keep up the great work, sir. Hey, thank you very much. Um, yeah, you know, I think that uh, has been one of the disasters and the tragedies of the pandemic is for a long time, people did trust scientists, did trust public health officials. The CDC, the NIH were held in high esteem. And you obviously see a decline in, in public confidence and trust because when people are lied to enough and manipulated enough, they're not stupid and they realize that. Um, and I think the desperate attempt to prevent Dr. Fauci from any accountability including for the obvious mistakes he made, the obvious errors he disseminated, and I would say even the mistruths and half-truths and lies he ultimately ratified, the attempt to prevent any accountability is really a a self-protective effort on their part to allow them to continue to do whatever they want without the rest of us asking any questions. So with that, let me thank everybody who came and listened, uh, particular thanks to the people who stepped up, and ask such great questions. That's always a crucial part of each of these episodes. If you are in the queue and I didn't get to you, please come back. Um, try and get in line early. And, and I hope to be able to engage with you soon. Uh, and I hope everybody has a great night. Thanks again.